This is Drummer's Resource Podcast, session 571, and the quote of the day is, be the things you loved most about the people who are gone. You're listening to the Drummer's Resource Podcast, home of in-depth interviews with the world's greatest drummers, music industry professionals, and thought leaders. Inspiration, education, and motivation for drumming, and beyond, and beyond, and beyond. What's going on, everybody? Nick Ruffini here, episode 571 of the Drummer's Resource Podcast. And over the weekend, we lost a great, the great Kahari Parker. Kahari was a professional in every sense of the word. He was a great human being. He was one of the nicest people I've ever met in my life. He was a father. He was a husband and was very much loved in the music and drumming community for good reason. And, you know, there was a comment. I posted about Kahari's passing on Instagram, and there was a comment by a gentleman named Greg who said the best way to honor him is to share his knowledge and show people what a great person he was. So that's why we're re-releasing this episode, because I want people to understand how great of a person he was. He was an amazing musician. He was an amazing drummer. He had chops and all that stuff and had an amazing resume, but that compares nothing to the type of person he was how genuine he was, how he lit up a room, how he made people laugh. And admittedly, I didn't know Kahari very well, but I met him in 2009 and I was in a club in in Hollywood, California called The Piano Bar. And there was a band playing and there was some people dancing. And then all of a sudden the room changed and the vibe changed and the room came alive. And I went up to get a closer look and it turns out that a new drummer was sitting in and it was Kahari. And I talked to him afterwards and he couldn't have been nicer. It turns out we had mutual friends and we sort of kept in touch over the years. And then uh, I just had him on the podcast last May. And again, I didn't know him extremely well, but the the engagements or the interaction that I had with him, he was so genuine and he was so nice and so knowledgeable. And it's a it's a huge loss. It's a huge loss for the for the drumming community, for the music community, but just just the world in general, and my heart and prayers go out to to his friends and his family, and let's let's honor his memory by sharing this. So if you know anyone who would love to hear this interview, please share it up, and let's get into it with the great Kahari Parker. Kahari Parker, how are you, my man? I'm doing just fine, Nick. How are you? I'm fantastic. It's so great to have you on here. I've... Uh, I mentioned off air, I've known about you for a very long time. You and I have a mutual friend, Felix Pollard. Felix, we love you, buddy. Oh, uh, man, Felix is the cat. And I, I, didn't, cat. I didn't pay him to say that either. He just said it right on his own. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I've wanted to have you on uh, you know, for a while, so I'm glad we, we finally connected. And I'd like to start with a, with a quick story. So I, I've mentioned this on the podcast numerous times where – I was at the piano bar and there was, um, man, I want to say it was Miles Mosley who was playing bass. I don't know if you're, is that his name, Miles Mosley? Yeah, that name sounds familiar. I believe it was, I believe it was him. He's not uh, relevant to the story, but I, but I believe that that's who it was who was playing. And there was a drummer and this dude was like, he was just playing way too many notes the whole time. Right. Mm -hmm. And the, and the bass player gets a solo and the drummer's chopping. And then the guitar player gets a solo and the drummer's chopping. And then the other guitar player gets a solo and the drummer's chopping. And then finally they're like, all right, let's give the drummer some. And I was kind of like, my man, he already had a lot. I don't know. <laughs> right. He doesn't really need any more. So then he he chops it up. And I've told this story multiple times on the podcast. And <clears throat> And then so he gets up and someone else comes and sits down and starts playing. And all of a sudden, there's not chopping, there's pocket, it's groove, it feels good. And now, everybody in the room is dancing. And Mm. I'm like, this is the job of a drummer, right? Like, this is exactly what you're supposed to do as a drummer. That drummer was was you. Oh, wow, man. (laughs) And I was like, and as soon as you started playing, I was like, and at the time, I didn't know who you were. And I was like... 
this cat gets it. I was like, this is this. He's a pro. Like this is this is the guy. Then they announced your name, and I was like, oh wait a minute, this is Felix's buddy. And then and I mentioned earlier, like I introduced myself afterwards just to say, hey man, loved your playing. You know, I'm friends with Felix. Whatever. I'm in town for Nam. You're in town for Nam. Cool. And and you left, and that was it. But right. that but that has stuck with me for so many years. Understanding someone who has chops like you do and controls it and plays for the music versus someone who has chops and wants to, you know, just flaunt it. So that has, that has uh, stuck with me all these years. And I just wanted to publicly let you know about that. So, and let everyone else hearing uh, know that as well. Wow, man, that is great, man. Uh, it's funny. Cause I think uh, a bass player friend of mine was hanging out that night. Um, and he came up to me after I played, it's like, dude, you make me sick. And I'm like, why? What I do? And he's like, why do you have to play so perfect? It was like, <laughs> it's all about foundation. You know, that's yeah. the drummer's job to lay foundation mm-hmm. for everybody else to, to stand upon. You know, that's mm-hmm. that's the main job. And man, you like the, the whole vibe of the room changed. You know, yeah, before that's... it was just like everybody blowing and then it just... Everyone started dancing. People like the total, the whole entire vibe of the room changed, and I was like, "That's that's what it is, man. That's what it's all about. That foundation for sure." There should definitely be body parts moving. Um, you know, <laughs> I mean, a head, a hip, or something. You know, right? <laughs> Foot tapping. That's, yeah, that's how you know the groove is happening. You know, right? For sure. Yeah. So, talk to me about about that foundation. Where where did you first understand, or where did you first learn? that you know building that foundation or laying that foundation was paramount well um for one um i grew up learning how to play in church mm-hmm. and so that was one of the first places um i realized that the groove is very important um because in church you know you'll have some old lady come up to you like baby i'm i'm trying to dance something <laughs> And I can't because you, you're a little wild, so you got to pull it together now, you know. <laughs> so <laughs> that was one of the first places I learned about groove. And then secondly, it was a bass player um, who's now, he's departed us by the name of Dave Brooks. He used to play with this band called Midnight Sun here in Chicago. Mm-hmm. And Dave was not only a stickler about the groove, but he was a stickler about learning original parts that were recorded on records. It's like there is a main reason these songs are hits, and it's because of these parts. They all fit together like a puzzle. They're, right. they're the glue. That's what makes the groove happen. Mm-hmm. So that was instilled in me very young, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So was it <clears> – <throat> when you were coming up in the church, was, was there a lot of chopping happening then too? You know, um, the many moons ago I came up in church, it, it, uh, <laughs> it wasn't really about chopping. It was more about uh, about grooves. And I was very fortunate to come up in the church that had a full band that had keyboards, guitars, bass, drums. Um, they even had horns at this church. Mm-hmm. So I had to get into like a full band concept very early. And it was more about groove than chops at that time. Right. Right. I, where, where did that come from? Where did like getting out of, I don't want to say getting out of groove, getting into chops, but where did it, where did it start with people where there was a lot of chopping going on and everyone sort of just equates that to, they call it gospel chops and they can, they equate it to gospel music. I don't know if that's a, a fair representation or not, but, but did you see that coming up or like not coming up, but did you, did you see that start to come onto the scene and, and where, you know, where was it coming from? Well, I first became aware of it. Um, that was around the time when all the DCI videos started coming out and mm-hmm. the Hudson videos with like um, the Dennis Chambers, uh, Serious Moves and uh, Dave Weckl, you know, Back to Basics. And right. so that first started opening my, my eyes to this whole chops and you know, just playing over the bar line and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of gospel guys got a hold of this this information very young. And they took it from there and just, you know, they built upon it. And they started, you know, 
that was their only outlet to get the stuff out was the church, mm-hmm. you know? Right. Yeah, because a lot of those guys were too young to get in jazz clubs or whatever. So they started putting it in gospel music. And of course, with gospel music having everything in it already, you know, gospel music has jazz, it has rock, it has R&B, it has, it has everything infused in it already. Mm-hmm. So the guy started writing to open up more, more um, foundation for these guys to go out and do what they had to do within the right. gospel music, you know? Yeah. It's amazing how much of a groundswell has happened from that. And interestingly, you, you mentioned the, the uh, Back to Basics, that 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 DVD or VHS, for those of you who uh, know what a VHS tape is, mm-hmm. um, <clears throat> uh, I almost said Laserdisc. Remember Laserdisc? <laughs> oh, I do remember Laserdisc. <laughs> and like halfway through the movie, you got to like flip it over to keep up. Yes. <laughs> so for anyone listening who doesn't know what a Laserdisc is, it was basically a CD, but it was as big, about as big as a record. It was a 12-inch CD. Yeah, it was a 12-inch CD, and and you played it like a DVD, and then you flip it over halfway through. Uh, (laughs) But anyway, the the Back to Basics, there's so many people who bring that particular DVD or video or VHS or whatever up as being sort of the the opening door for them is like – or like the gateway drug into into Mm -hmm. that, you know? And and I don't know if it was just – Weckle was just doing some stuff that nobody's ever seen before because he was on like another planet. Exactly. Uh, and but it's it's interesting that it's that particular DVD or that particular VHS tape that so many people reference all the time. Yeah, and you know it's funny because at that time, um, the VH, VHS thing had really started jumping off because I can remember, you know, the Dave Weckle stuff, the Dennis Chambers stuff, and then they started putting out all the Buddy Rich Memorial um, Mm -hmm. VHSs. And, you know, that's when I first saw Vinny Caliuta for the first time and and Steve Gadd for the first time, you know. So it was like, yeah, the Dave Weckle thing was kind of the gateway drug, you know. Yeah. And there wasn't wasn't a ton of readily available information out there, you know. Like maybe you could go to the library and find something, but like there was obviously no YouTube. So where else would you have seen this if it was broadcast on – television that you may have caught it or something like i don't even know right. what it was but like there were there weren't many opportunities to to see this stuff and certainly not readily available you know no no and i mean you know at that time um you know even the drum clinics were were far and few in between you know mm-hmm. i can mm-hmm. remember uh dave weckel coming to chicago and it was a whole year later before they brought dennis chambers to chicago it's just right. like you had to wait that long for, you know, to, to see any of that stuff even live, you know? Yeah, for sure. And now, you know, drum clinics are still are still pretty popular. But then specifically at the time where, you know, if Dennis Chambers or Dave Weckl comes to Chicago, every drummer in Chicago goes. Oh, yeah. Right? You don't miss that it, event. Because yeah. <laughs> it's not like, oh, I'll just catch it on YouTube. It's like there is no YouTube. You're, everyone is there. Yeah, yeah. You got to be there. And, you know, that's that's one thing I did love about that time. You know, it was a huge support. It was a huge fan base. And it was, you know, back then we didn't even have like, you know, the Internet or computers to even tell us these people were coming. It was just word of mouth. Mm-hmm. You know, the phone would ring. It's like, hey, man, you know, Dennis Chambers coming to town tonight. Or yeah. Vinnie Caliud is playing this little club on the north side, you know. And right. it was like the word would just spread from word of mouth, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It was a special time, man. These kids don't know how well they have it. I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> I love it, though. I mean, the the there's uh, there, to me, there's two sides of the coin. I love the idea that all this information is out there, and and you can theoretically learn anything that you, whether it be drumming or anything else, like you could legitimately like learn how to fly a plane by watching YouTube. You know what I mean? It, it, right, it right. Totally blows my mind. But the other side of it, I think that because the information is so readily available, maybe we don't take it uh, or maybe we take it for granted and we can just sort of like skim the surface mm-hmm. and just, Oh yeah, I've seen that video. I, I watched that. Uh, I watched that buddy rich Memorial. Yeah, 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 I get it. You know? Oh, okay. I watched uh, three minutes of back to base. Yeah, 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 I get that. And it's yeah. like, and no one's going like super deep on, on concepts. Do you see that happening or do you, or not? I don't want to, you know, I don't want to put words in your mouth. No, no, I do see it happening. And, 
um, by you mentioning that, it makes me think of a conversation that I had not too long ago about the Internet being helpful and hurting us at the same time, you know, Mm -hmm. and it's helpful because you have all this information right here at your fingertips. You know, Um, you can just click on and you can spend hours just surfing, you know, different cats. And I was like, man, it's great. You can take a lesson with your favorite drummer every day of the week. You know, Mm -hmm. you can have seven different drum lessons in one week, you know. But on the other hand, I think it it hurts us because it's it's kind of stunning the uh, the the individuality. You know, mm-hmm. um, nobody's really being creative. It's just like, oh, I can get this lick, get it verbatim, note for note. I can even see how he's doing it, and everybody's sounding the same as mm-hmm. for back in the day when we used to get stuff off of records or cassettes. You can play something like what your favorite guy played, or it would in- inspire you to create your own individual thing off of this, this inspiring idea, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and yeah. Cause I mean, how many records did you listen to where you were like, I, I, I think this is what he's playing. Mm-hmm. I, I mm-hmm. Maybe, maybe it's kind of, it sounds like it, you know, and then it turns into your own thing that you, that becomes in your arsenal, you know? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. That's how. Then you find out years later it was completely wrong. (laughs) Oh yeah, totally wrong. But you played it with so much confidence because it was your thing, you know. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I was talking about Sissy Strut. How like I didn't realize that that he played it open hand for years. Yeah, yeah. I saw a video and I was like, the light bulb went on. I was like, oh, that okay, okay, I get it now. (laughs) But you created your own thing from what you heard, you know. Yeah. 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 So now this is the Nick Ruffin version of Sissy Strut, you know. There you go. There you go. <laughs> um, so I want to talk about the idea of diversity in your playing and understanding multiple different styles. Like I remember I was I was watching a, a, um, a video of you at Guitar Center and it starts off and you're playing brushes, right? So you're swinging and then you're – then you go into a groove and then you get it gets choppy and then there's this and there's all of these different there's all of these different styles all of these different techniques all of these different feels and i think that one of the things that that we as drummers run into a lot especially now with how much information is out there we never know where to start how to develop these certain things and either skim the surface and don't get really you know don't get a lot of depth with it or um just go down one road and don't really expand all of the different styles. Cause I mean, you can like, I've seen you play with George Benson and you know, you played in destiny's child. Like those mm-hmm. are two different, those are completely different gigs. I'm guessing. Right. Totally different. Yes. Yes. Hold, hold, hey, I got to you... ask you something about George Benson real quick. Okay. Uh, is he not like the hippest dude you've ever met in your life? Oh dude, he's, He's a whole show off stage as well as on stage. Like he, he said, this guy. He said the coolest he, thing I've ever heard anyone say in my entire life when we were at Nam. He looked oh, at yeah. the, I guess he was with like his assistant or something, and he looked over and he said, "Come on, baby, we got to breeze. I got to catch that aeroplane." And I was like, "That's the." <laughs> I was like, "That's the hippest shit I've ever heard anyone say in my life." I was like, "I'll never be that cool." And that's George Benson, twenty four seven man. <laughs> yeah. Just like. I can remember being on a tour bus with him and um, he wanted something to drink. So he's pointing at the fridge and I'm like, okay, yeah. And he's like, no, open it up. I was like, okay. And he's like, yeah, give me that elixir out of there. And it was just a <laughs> bottle of water, you know. It's just like, how can you not hand this dude the elixir? Like, <laughs> he's got to have it, you know. <laughs> he's yeah, the I feel that I've ever met in my life, man. I'm sure, man. I'm sure. I'm like, I, I heard him say that, and I was like, I can't imagine, you know, like you spending that much time because I'm sure there was just stuff like that all all day, every day, just like all day, every day, man. Like, we were hanging out in New Orleans one day, and. uh we were on Bourbon Street, and so it's like, oh, let's just go to this bar right here. So I'm like, okay, cool. So I'm um, like, what you drinking? You know, and he orders it up, and I order what I'm drinking, and I reach in my pocket to pay for the drink. And I'm like, um, I got it. And he's like, brother, what are you doing? I'm George Benson. I got two pockets full of money. And I'm like, 
okay, I guess I'll put my my little I, wallet away. You I know? guess you. I guess I'll put my one wallet away. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it's amazing. Yeah, he's he's. Uh, I mean, he plays. I feel like he talks the same way that he plays. You know what I mean? Just super cool, super smooth. You know. Yeah, and I mean, you know, it's funny because that's how he wants you to play in his band. You know, he'll make suggestions and then he'll say, but I don't want to tell you how to play. You know, I want Mm -hmm. your interpretation of what I'm talking about. And he gives you that freedom, you know. Right, right. It's very cool. So we were talking about sort of the the difference between playing with someone like a George Benson and Destiny's Child, right? Two totally mm-hmm. different gigs, different vibes. You know, what? So how do you get in a? How do you put yourself in a position to be able to do those both of those gigs and do them well and do them correctly? Well, you you have to realize um, what the situation is, and what I mean by that, like with Destiny's Child. You know, we had uh, had Pro Tools running. We had dancers. uh, We had video screens running. We had pyrotechnics Mm -hmm. running. So all of this stuff going on, um, there's different cues and different things in the show that have to go right every night. So playing in that situation, you kind of have to – to mimic yourself every night. There's got to be mm-hmm. certain things you do. Okay, this break, it's got to be set up with this feel. Or, you know, I know when I play this, it's going to inspire Beyonce to do this. Mm-hmm. Or I know Beyonce is going to do this, la, 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 la. And she might want me to catch that with her. Oh, you know, I like when you catch that with me. So now I got to do this every night, you know. Right. Um, and... With George Benson, it's a whole nother situation because there's a freedom. Uh, And of course, you have to set up certain breaks or certain riffs, but he also wants you to inspire him and other players in the band because, you know, there's there's improvising going on. Mm -hmm. So you have to you have to create a certain energy um, in that drum chair, you know. So, you know, I think that's the major difference. And playing between both of those gigs, you know? So what about preparation when you're uh, – maybe not preparation, but the preparation that was done the years leading up to that? Were you specifically going out and trying, okay, let me – I got to work on my jazz chops. Okay, I got to work on this. I got to work on that. Or was it just a matter of putting yourself in situations where you're like, ooh, okay, maybe I don't swing as well as I should. I, I better I better figure that out in the practice room. You know, um, growing up in Chicago was really – really uh, a blessing for me because there's so much music in Chicago. I mean, Mm -hmm. all of those different styles of music I've played on the road, I've learned playing right here in Chicago. Um, I came up, like I said, I grew up in church and then uh, I did marching band and jazz band in high school. So, you know, that, that was my jazz side. And then my band director in high school would turn me on to other band directors and, and people she knew around town that were doing like plays and uh, doing big band stuff and doing private corporate gigs, you know, that would be doing anything from the Rolling Stones uh, to playing Jesse's girl or whatever, you know? Mm -hmm. So playing in Chicago really prepared me to play on the road. I mean, it was, um, I could be playing a small jazz club Monday, Tuesday night, and then go and play a rock club on Wednesday night and mm-hmm. go and play a, a small dance set on Thursday night, you know, that's playing all top 40 or R&B tunes. So, and of course I was playing at church every Sunday. So it was right. like, I just had this huge gumbo of music going on in Chicago, you know? Mm-hmm. And, this might be a hard question to answer because you didn't grow up this way, but how how would you suggest that someone now starts to build not only a career but build those different types of gigs? Because one, I mean, obviously, you know, it's it's different than it was ten years ago, twenty years ago, thirty years ago, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, can you speak to that at all, or what you what you've seen that is working with maybe younger drummers or younger musicians that you see coming up now? Well, you know what I what I do now 
which might be helpful to uh, younger cats. Um, if you do get the chance to play with somebody, see what they're listening to or ask them to turn you on to, to, to some different type of music. You know, like I play with Jeffrey Osborne and Jeffrey used to play drums. So I'm like, Hey man, you know, who do you listen to nowadays or whatever? Mm-hmm. And, you know, he might throw out, uh, Steve Ferroni or Steve Gadd, you know, I'm like, wow, well, what are you listening to? And he might throw out a few songs that he's listening to by those guys. And then with George, Benson, I'll ask him what he's listening to, you know, and he really loves still to this day. He really loves Harvey Mason. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, he'll, you know, suggest a few Harvey Mason tunes or whatever. And um, did I Harvey think it, play with him back in the day? He did play with him um, for a little while live, but he did a lot of those recordings with uh, George okay. Benson back in the day. I asked because there's a video on YouTube and I can't, I don't know who the drummer is and I've like put it out on Instagram and all that stuff. Can't figure out who it is. And there's one particular, uh, there's one particular video that I remember that the bass player, the bass player is actually playing tambourine with his feet. He's like Stanley Banks. Yeah. Stanley Banks. Yeah. So who's, is that, so who's playing, I don't know if you know the video I'm talking about, but there's a drummer. I don't know who it is. I don't know if it's Harvey Mason. I don't know who it is. You know, it's um, a couple of New York guys that played with George in the early days. Um, I really feel bad. I can't remember this guy's last name, but his first name was Buddy. And um, Steve Ferrone has played with um, with George Benson. Mm-hmm. And um, it's a lot of people went through that gig, man. Yeah, back in those days. Yeah, yeah. I don't. Yeah, I can't. I just. I can't figure out who. Like, I look at him and I'm like, I have no idea. And he had like a. He kind of looked like a little like militant. He had like a like a sort of like a military jacket on and everything. I don't know. I'll send you the link. Maybe you know. Maybe you know who it is because I've yes. talked to a bunch of people and they're like, I don't know who it is. Send me the link and I can get Stanley Banks to look at it. Stanley would know who it is for sure. Okay. Okay. Yeah, because Stanley's nice. been with George for 43 years. Okay. Does he still play bass with or play tambourine with his feet? Yes. Yes. It's now insane. he's playing tambourine and cowbell with his feet. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> Natural evolution, man. Yeah. I remember. I remember watching that video, and I'm and I hear tambourine, and I'm like, you look and you know the video. It's kind of like panning, but it's only like waist up. And you're mm-hmm. like, who's Who's playing tambourine? I'm like, I know it's not sampled. It's like 1979. You know right. what I mean? They didn't overdub it. Yeah, this is, and then all of a sudden it like zooms out, and you see the, and you see Stanley like just wiggling his leg back and forth. <laughs> I was like, oh my god, the bass player. <laughs> yeah, he's really, he's like, I call him the groove master, man, because he's all about groove and time. You know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah. That dude, man, it's amazing to play with him because he creates so much energy on stage, you know, with yeah. just all of the dancing and the moving and the hip shaking. It's like you hear him playing, but you look over there like, man, is this dude is that into it? I got to come on with it, you know? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I better do something over here. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he's played these songs for 40 some years and yeah. it still it still moves them, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's for sure. That's that's the groove. A hip yeah. is moving, the head is moving, the foot is tapping, you know? That's it. That's yep. it. So I I interrupted you about you were talking about um, you know, asking asking um Benson who he listens to and you were saying that he he's really into and then I cut Harvey you off. Mason. Yeah, he's into Harvey Mason. Oh, Harvey Mason, that's right. You did say that. Yeah. 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 Uh, but that's that's what I try to do, you know. Um I just I try to get into other people's minds and see what they're listening to and check it out, you know? Mm-hmm. And, um, I think for a younger player, you know, um, if they have somebody, a mentor, or even if they have a, a, a band director or something in high school, they can ask them, you know, who, who do you listen to? Who do you think is hip? You know? Mm-hmm. 
one line in the dream symbol family that I think is really cool is the dark matter family. They have the flat earth, the moon ride, and the dark matter energy. And although they're all made a little bit differently, they all involve the dark matter process. And this is really cool. Check this out. They take a symbol that is already finished and then put it back in the oven, hand hammer it, and then shock it with cold water, and then put it back in the oven. And what happens is the ash and the soot from the oven are fused to the top layer of the metal, which give it this really, really unique sound. And you know what? I want to let you hear exactly what this process does to a symbol. Check them out. To learn more about Dream Symbols, their Dark Matter line, and all their great products, be sure to check out DreamSymbols.com. If you're looking for a top-of-the-line snare, then look no farther than the Mapex Black Panther Design Lab series. These are designed to combine sound concepts to create unique and personal instruments for the demanding player. They come in three unique variations, and they all have their own unique sound quality to them. You have the Heartbreaker, which is dark and rustic and throaty. You have the Cherry Bomb, which is vintage, controlled, and precise. And then you have the Equinox, which will give you that classic, bright, articulate sound. To learn more about the Mapex Black Panther Design Lab series, go to mapexdrums.com. I get a lot of people who ask me about getting into different situations where they're like, you know, everyone in my circle plays rock or everyone in my circle plays this style of music and I'd really like to start playing with jazz guys or start playing with, you know, people who are playing funk or something, some other different style. Um, but I and I think it's hard. I mean, maybe, maybe in bigger, you know, maybe in Chicago and New York and L.A. and and all that kind of stuff, it might be easy. But in like in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. it might be it might be a little difficult. You know, it might you be a little harder. No, no, no. It it might be a little harder, and it's kind of a little hard for me to relate to that because in high sure. school, my best friend, um, this guy by the name of Kirk Marshall, uh, we played in, in drumline together, and he totally turned me on to rock music. You know, mm-hmm. he was like, he was way into to Metallica, Lars Orange. So, mm-hmm. like, you know, I come, I came up in church. So we were just swapping cassettes. You know, he would give me, you know, here's one by Metallica. Check this out. And I would give him uh, Walter Hawkins with uh, Joel Smith playing drums on it. Uh-huh. You know, so for me, you know, I, I felt like. Um, it was a little easier to get into different styles of music because even at the church I played at, it was this guy named Leonard Stroud. Um, he played totally different from anybody I knew, but he was into Chick Corea and like Frank, Frank Zappa. Matter of fact, he gave me my first uh, Chick Corea cassette tape, you know, the mm-hmm. eye of the beholder, which, you know, of course had Dave Weckl on it. Yeah. So, you know, that was eye opening for me. But if I think if a younger guy from from Tuscaloosa or, or Huntsville, you know, can just try to open up a conversation with somebody else that's playing music, I'm sure he'll be able to stumble upon something different. You know, even mm-hmm. if it's just a, a YouTube clip or something that would it's like a gateway to opening up the ears to something different, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I remember. You know, Go ahead. I'm, I'm the kind of guy, you know. You might tell me, "Oh man, I like Brian Blade," and I'll just go in and type in Brian Blade on YouTube, and three hours later, you know, I'm listening to all the stuff he did with Wayne Shorter and mm-hmm. you know the Fellowship Band and stuff like that. You know, I just I kind of I try to let stuff lead me into places I would never go before. You know, right, right. Or you end up watching something, then you're like. I've never even heard of this drummer or this band or anything. And it's like some rare footage that you found. And you're like, this is amazing. I would have never found this if I didn't dig down to this rap, you know, down this rabbit hole. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> That's why I like that. You know, we were talking about the good and bad of the internet. The good thing is you can go down a rabbit hole. You can do some deep, deep studying of and understand, you know, a particular artist or a particular drummer or a particular style. I mean, that's definitely 
there. I just think it takes a little bit of self-control to, to not go, you know, not look at every single thing for three minutes and go on to the next thing. Yeah. You gotta, you gotta definitely have some discipline and put in some time on it. You know, um, it's funny because when I first got the, the George Benson gig, they gave me like 50 songs to learn. Mm-hmm. And that opened up a whole Pandora's box for me, you know, because it was, of course, songs I heard with, you know, Breezin' and on Broadway and stuff like that. Right. But there were other tunes on there that I had never heard before. And uh, so that made me go on the Internet and start searching, you know, just for mm-hmm. different, even different live versions, just to see how the arrangements were back in the 70s or 80s, you know. Right. And uh, I was curious as even to how the drums were tuned or sounding back then, you know, and tried mm-hmm. to capture some of that stuff and try to bring it back to date, you know. Right. How yeah. do you learn? How do you learn 50 new songs? What's the process behind that? Well, luckily, I had uh, I had a month to learn all these songs before we started rehearsing. So I said, okay, um, only way I'm going to get these tunes if, if I set some type of regiment for myself. So I picked 10 songs. I said, okay, I'm going to do these 10 songs for five days this week, give myself a break on the weekend and then pick another 10 songs the next week. Mm -hmm. And so I did that for about a month. And then, um, I didn't want to be on charts when I went to rehearsal. Right. So, so did you chart everything out or did did they give you the charts? They, they had charts ready available for me, but I didn't even want to, to put myself in that, that position. I wanted to Mm -hmm. be able to make eye contact with George and the bass player as well. And, um, at the time, David Garfield was the music director and I wanted to be able to have eyes on him as well. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I put myself on a 10 song a day regiment, you know. Right. So if you're if you have a list of 10 songs, I really I like I like understanding this process. I think it helps the listeners too. So if mm-hmm. if you have a list of 10 songs, are you playing song 1, then 2, 3, 4, all the way down to 10, starting back over? Are you playing song 1 10 times, making notes at every time you go through then moving on to song 2? How how does that work? Well, for me, it was um the first couple of days was playing song one um, three times, song two, three times in a row, song three, three times in a row. So that I did the first couple of days. And then like the third day, I said, OK, I've got a pretty good handle on these songs. Let me see if I can take them one through ten. So I did that day three and four and day five I was just like, OK, let me see if I can play one through ten and then just cut it off and be done with it. Right. And, you know, I also um, would put the songs on in the morning. I like to walk in the morning for 30, 40 minutes. Mm-hmm. And I would put those songs on as I was walking every day, just trying to make it a part of my everyday regimen, you know? Yep. Yeah, you start to internalize them. And I mean, for me, I know that if I do that, if I'm listening to them when I'm at the gym or whatever else, all of a sudden you like – you know the hits are coming or, yeah, or yeah, whatever yeah, else. Yeah. And then you sit down and you're like, oh, I I didn't even realize I knew that part of the song or whatever it is. Yeah, yeah. You're unconsciously learning these songs, you know, uh-huh. just making yep. them a part of your everyday life, man, you know? Yeah. yeah. So if you're if you're learning something that has tracks and pyrotechnics and all that kind of stuff, are you working most of that out in rehearsal? And you just know the form of the tune, you know how it goes, and then you get into get into production and start figuring all that out? Well, you, there's definitely um, time in production rehearsal to learn all of the, the different hits and accents and stuff with the pyro. And, you know, um, a lot of the bigger tours, they have a few weeks of production rehearsal. But the Destiny's Child gig, I kind of had a heads up, though, because of uh, the bass player, Ethan Farmer. He gave me um, a show tape a few months ahead of time. It's like, just learn this show. And I promise you, you'll have the gig. This is this is the gig, you know. And uh, it was funny when the time came up for me to audition. You know, I uh, I flew out to L.A. and uh, I knew I had a couple of days of rehearsing for the audition. So I go in, I play a, a couple of tunes down and the music director's wow, let's play another tune. You know, that feels pretty good. 
And so then he started calling songs that he didn't have on the list for the audition. And he's like, well, wow, you, you got this too. And so he's like, come back to rehearsal the next day. Then he's like, come back to rehearsal the next day. So now I'm like, but how would he expect days. you to know those? How would he expect you to know those tunes? Or would he just maybe hoping you could like fit, like kind of figure your way out through it? I, I think he knew, you know, by the way I was feeling through these songs, like I think this guy has a heads up on this show already. Got you. And, and so um, the third or fourth day into rehearsal, I was like, man, you know, what's up? Am, am I going to get the gig or whatever? You know, he's like, dude, you had the gig three days ago. You're like, we're rehearsing for tour now, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know. You're like, am I getting paid for this rehearsal? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was already on the clock, man. It was crazy. <laughs> but it was funny because we did all that rehearsing and then Beyonce came in and she was like, we're going to change the whole show. I want a whole fresh show for this new tour. Oh, and really? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, it was like, it was good that I did my homework and learned this stuff, but it was like, okay, now you're in the door. Now we got to see who you really are because we're going to do a whole new show now. Right. Did you work with Beyonce too or just Destiny's Child? Um, I did a few shows with Beyonce. Okay. And then uh, she did a... Jay Leno at the time, and she mm -hmm. had Sheila E. put uh, this all-girl band together. Oh, nice. And, um, she came back after that, and she was like, man, I really dug the vibe of just, like, all females on stage. She's like, would you find me a female drummer? And I was like, wait, you want me to refine my replacement? <laughs> and she's like, yeah, but I'll pay you. So I was like, okay, cool. <laughs> <laughs> sure, I could do that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, who plays with her now? Um, uh, I'm not sure who's playing with her now. I kind of lost track after uh, Kim Foster and Nikki Gillespie played with her. Yeah, I forget the girl's name. That's not. I mean, it's not important. But I was. Yeah, I, I lost her track name. Like popped that. in my head, and then it and then it just disappeared. Coincidentally, we just did a uh, uh, an interview with um, with Sheila E a couple weeks ago, and okay. man, she is just. Like the the things that she has done in her career are made. She was playing with George Duke when she was sixteen. Oh my goodness! Wow, that's nuts. It is crazy, man. And yeah. you know, George was like was a heavy cat. You know, I was just watching some um, some old clips of him on YouTube the other night, and um, just listening to all the stuff he had infused in his music. You know, because mm -hmm. I didn't know he played with like Cannonball Adderley. Yeah, in his younger years, he played with Frank Zappa, and he would. I didn't know that. Yeah, he used to play with Frank Zappa in his younger years as well. I did not know that. And he used to infuse that stuff in his in his live show and his music, man. Yeah, he was he was definitely definitely a talent for sure. Definitely, definitely. So, so I have to ask. I would be remiss if I didn't. So who who are you listening to now? Uh, nowadays. Um, you know, I'm still listening to all the classic guys, uh, you know, the Dave Weckles, Vinnie Caliutas, mm -hmm. Dennis Chambers, Harvey Mason, uh, Steve Gadd, of course. And then uh, the, the younger guys that I like, uh, Ronald Bruner Jr., mm -hmm. uh, Mike Mitchell, um, Tavarius, Varl Johnson, mm -hmm. um, uh, Clemens Poindexter, um, Jermaine Poindexter, Josiah Maddox, Leonard Maddox, you know, it's it's a it's a whole host of guys, you know, from mm -hmm. from young to old, you know. Um I, I try to to listen to the, the older guys to make sure, you know, I, I keep my foundation right. But I try to listen to some younger guys as well just to, to try to stay fresh and yeah and and, and, and relevant, you know? Mm-hmm. For sure. Yeah. There's a lot of people out there pushing a lot of boundaries right now, and it's 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 inspiring to see. It's a it's intimidating. It makes me want to lock myself in a closet and either practice for the rest <laughs> of my life or just sell all my drums and never play again. But but uh, it's definitely it's definitely inspiring, man. There are some there are some heavy stuff happening right now. It is, it is, man. I can remember. Uh, I um, I think I was at North Sea Jazz Fest, and uh, I saw that Corey Henry was playing. Mm -hmm. And uh, my friend Sheree Reed was playing bass with him. So I said, well, I'm going to go over and say hi and catch a couple of songs and, and then get out and go grab some dinner. 
And, uh, you know, two hours later, I'm just stuck in the groove, you know, <laughs> just listening to Terry uh, on Tehran. Is it Terry on or Terry on Lockett that's playing drums with Corey Henry now? I don't know. I think it's Tehran Lockett. That's his name. But okay. I was just stuck listening to his groove for like two hours, man. Just like, wow, this dude is phenomenal. You know, that's a good sign, right? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. It It always amazes me that. This is sort of a side topic, but it made me it made me think about it. Yesterday, I interviewed. Uh, it's a loose <laughs> it's a loose connection, but uh, I always have people who are non maybe non drummers or even non musicians who are on the show. So it might be a music industry person or maybe something like that. And I've had a couple athletes that are to come on, like professional athletes. I had uh, a guy who plays for the Cleveland Browns, and then um, yesterday I had a guy named Brett Myers who he was a starting pitcher for the Phillies uh, back okay. in 08. They won the World Series, all this stuff, right? Had a really successful career in Major League Baseball, and now he's a musician. Mm-hmm. And we were talking about the differences between being an athlete versus being a musician, where like if you can hit a ball 450 feet, you're on a team. Right. Right. If you can throw right. a ball 150 miles an, or, you know, 100 miles an hour and throw strikes, you're on a team. Doesn't like you will get you will get picked up. But you can be the greatest drummer in the world and never get out of your basement or no one ever knows about you. And, you know, that's just the, the nature of the beast. And it's always inspiring to me that you can show up somewhere and you can see someone who just completely knocks you out. You know, oh yeah, and you're just blown away, and you're like, "How does everyone in the world not know about this dude or this woman?" Right. Or and it could be like, it could be anywhere. It could be on YouTube, or it could be at some random bar or some random place in anywhere, any pocket in the country or in the world. That to me is it's it's inspiring uh, as a musician, but on the other side, it's a little it's a little discouraging because you're like, you know. A couple of chips need to fall the right way, but it's such Definitely. an amazing thing to me that there's yeah. that anywhere you I, uh, go, you can find this great stuff. Yeah, yeah. So I, I had a friend um, contact me not so long ago. Um, she's like, "Man, I know this guy that plays saxophone. He's really an amazing saxophone player." And she's like, "You know, what do I tell him? Where should I send him?" And I'm just like wow, I really don't know, you know, because kind of the days of the open jam is kind of dead, you know, Mm -hmm. and and even um, around Chicago with all the music that's going on, it's still, it's not that many clubs where you can just go and sit in, you know. Right. Yeah, because guys now, they've got their polished rehearsed shows and it's like, oh, you can't just come sit in on my set, you know. Right, right. Yes. So she called and was like, this dude can hit a free throw from anywhere. You'd be like, then go tell him to try out for the Bulls. Right, right. You know, it's like, (laughs) it's done. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I wish it was that easy. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if that's that's good or bad, right? Because, but uh, I don't know. I like to look at the positive in things. I think that's inspiring that there's definitely, you know, there's people all over the world that are making amazing music and whether they're, you know, on the cover of every magazine and selling millions of records, they're still creating, they're still putting that, that energy out there and yeah. people are still enjoying it and still people are still going to see it. And, and I don't know, man, I think that, I think that's an amazing thing. Yeah. I mean, cause you, you still have people like, um, like Stanley Clark. I, uh, I had to fill in a gig for his drummer in Chicago about a year ago because mm-hmm. he, uh, his drummer got snowed in into New York and, Stanley had to play at the city winery. And so a friend of mine hooked me up with him, but he had this violinist playing with him. And uh, I was like, man, how long have you been with Stanley? He's like, this is my first gig with Stanley. I met him on the internet and he asked me to come out here and play. And so the guy is still touring with Stanley Clark to this day. Wild. He met him on the internet. (laughs) That's wild, man. Yeah. It's crazy, right? Uh, Yeah. I mean that I that's I had a conversation today like there's been like one of one of my uh my favorite bands that I kind of like that I grew up on was a band called Fish right mm-hmm. and uh John Fishman is the drummer and I was always like man I, you know I've been to like literally a hundred of their shows and I was like I would love to have this dude on my show but they're huge like they you know they sell out 13 nights in a row at Madison Square Garden you know like right. they're a big man I sent him a Facebook message and he was like yeah let's do it when do you want to do it 
<laughs> like, why did I think about that three years ago? But it's right. just that that is amazing to me, though. You know, like, yeah. The fact Stanley Clark hires a violinist off the internet. Yeah, and the you guy's know, still like, touring with them to this day. A year later, he's still with them. You know, he's been all over the world. Man, see, I, like that's how I feel. Like I don't want to hear anyone complaining that they can't get gigs. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the power's well, out there. You just got to hustle for it. You got to hustle for it. You, you got to find that creative niche, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, you just got to you got to be creative and and whatever your approach is, it's got to be creative, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that 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 non-stop uh just hustle mode, you know, like not in a sleazy way, but like constantly following up with people, talking to people, meeting people, you know, hiring people. If you, if you can start a band and hire other people, I think most of the time the people who are not working are just sitting around complaining about not working, not mm -hmm. actually going out and being open to different opportunities and, and trying to, trying to, uh, you know, inject some life into their own careers. Yeah, yeah, and you definitely you have to be um, a people person as well, you know, because, uh, you know, you you get out here on these tours and and you got to be a likable person. You gotta mm -hmm. you gotta be somebody that someone wants to hang with, you know, right? Because yep. you're on stage, you know, what an hour, forty minutes tops, you know, every day. Mm -hmm. The rest yep. of the time, you know, you got twenty one, twenty two hours to spend with somebody, you know. Yeah. Yeah, what's you one of the be biggest? Cat. Yeah, what you are. Uh, <laughs> what What do you think is one of the biggest misconceptions of of life on the road, being a professional musician? Uh, you know, like because everyone's like, oh, I want to tour. Like, I just want to get. In the, I want to like. I want to be a touring drummer. What do you think is one of the biggest misconceptions? I think one of the biggest misconceptions is that. This life is also glamorous, you know, like, yeah. oh, my God, it's, it's always bright lights, big cities, you know, mm -hmm. and um, there's a lot of things unseen, you know, the, the delayed flights or the crazy travel, you know, the 14 hour bus rides or something like that. Mm -hmm. You know, they, they, they don't see that that side. You get into a town after an eight hour flight and your hotel room's not ready. You, you're just sitting in the lobby with your feet propped up on your, your luggage, you know? Right. Yeah. Waiting on, waiting on your room to get ready, you know, <laughs> <laughs> or getting in it, you know, getting in it, uh, whatever, eight o'clock in the morning and you have, you have lobby call at noon for sound check or something. Yeah. 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 Or you're supposed to get in at eight o'clock and you get in <laughs> at 11, 15, and you got enough time to go throw your luggage in your room and go to sound check, you know. Right. Yeah, right. but maybe you can get a sandwich on the way, you know. <laughs> <laughs> maybe. Yeah, yeah. Catering's probably uh, late, though, showing up, too. So. Maybe. Or the caterer's <laughs> not good. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> That's true. So speaking of uh, on the road, where can, we, where can we catch you out on the road? Um, I'll be... Um, Touring with George Benson again this summer. Um, we start um, actually we start back up in California next weekend. Uh, we're doing San Diego and uh, Newport Beach Jazz Fest. Nice. And then uh, we go. Um, is it Saratoga Springs, New York? Mm -hmm. Saratoga Springs and uh, Niagara Falls, and then we do. Um, Canada, and then we go to Europe from there. So I'll be in Europe awesome. all of July. Awesome. Yeah. Maybe I'll see. I'm going to look at the schedule and dates and all that kind of stuff. Maybe I'll, I'll I'm going to try to come to Newport. Newport okay. Fest. Yeah, and actually Newport is. Uh, I got I got lucky because Jeffrey's opening up for George. Jeffrey Osborne's opening mm -hmm. up for George. So I'm going to do both shows that day. Nice. Uh, June second. Yeah. Two for one. Yeah, so I, I was laughing, talking with Jeffrey. I said, you know, I, I got to play with George Benson on this show. Do you mind if I do both shows? And Jeffrey's like, oh, um, who's opening up? And I'm like, you're opening up. And he laughs. He's like, oh, sh have at it because I get the fresh Kahari. You go on with me first. So <laughs> <laughs> George will get you second after I right. use you all up. 
<laughs> He's going to give you five drum solos. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so do you, do you teach as well? You know what? I used to teach and I had to stop because of my touring schedule. Yeah. Um, and I actually, I miss it, but I felt like I was hurting my students more than I was helping them. Uh, just because I was so inconsistent with the lessons, you know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that I think that there definitely needs to be um, a level of consistency there. Um, if you're going to have students, you got to see you got to see the progress and you got to progress with them, you know? Yeah. 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 And I, th- I think that's a I think staying or, you know, doing it when it works for you almost becomes a selfish thing on your part. Right. Where you're like. Why well, make money when I come home and then I'm gone for a little while and you're on your own and you can do whatever you want. And then when I come home, so I applaud you for, for, you know, I think most, not most people, but I think a lot of people would just be like, wouldn't think of it that way, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I thought about it that way because I can remember taking lessons when I was younger and, and, you know, having that teacher to check up on me every week definitely helped my progress and sure. helped me you know, wanting to do better every week, you know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. it was funny. Cause I can remember even in the earlier days, the guy, you know, teaching me paradiddles or double stroke rolls. And I didn't practice from one week to another, like I should. And I can remember trying to fool this cat. It's like, <laughs> yeah. you know, now looking back, I'm like, he heard it immediately that I didn't practice. You know? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yep. I've been there, done that for sure. Yeah, yeah definitely. <laughs> You're like, yeah, they'll never know. Yeah, right. No, he'll never know that I'm scuffling over this paradiddle. I, <laughs> I scuffled a whole uh, whole piece in college. And after I was done, the professor was like, I like how you uh, you improvise three quarters <laughs> of the thing. And I'm like, how does he even know? Because he didn't have the music. And I look up at the top right and he arranged it. Oh, wow. I was like, <laughs> busted. Right. Yeah, done. Yeah. Dead in the water. So, <laughs> Well, Kahari, I want to uh, thank you for, for taking the time to chat, man. It was nice to – it's funny how things come full circle, you know, like uh, running into you in the piano bar how many years ago and being able to sit down and, and have a conversation and have you share your knowledge with, with not only the, the people who are coming up in this industry but the people who have been in it for a while I think is extremely valuable. So I appreciate you for that. And uh, – Safe travels out there on the road, and hopefully I'll get to see you soon. Thank you, man. And I definitely want to give a big thank you out to you as well, man, for even having this platform for people to, to listen and, and get information, man. I applaud you, brother. Thank you well, so much. Thank you. Man. It would not be possible without people like you taking the time to chat. So Awesome, man. You. My pleasure, brother. Thanks, man. Safe travels, and I will talk to you soon, my man. All right, Nick, man. All the all best right. to you, baby. Thanks, brother. You too. Peace.
There you have it, the great Kahari Parker. May he rest in peace. And you can find the show notes by going to drummersresource.com forward slash session 571. Also, as I mentioned in the top of the interview, the best way to honor his memory is to share this episode and to let people know what type of person he was, what type of musician he was, how great he was. So if you know anyone who would love this, please do me a favor and share it and and let his name get out there even more for sure. It's at drummersresource.com forward slash session 571. Until the next podcast, keep drumming. Thank you so much for listening. Stay well, take care of yourselves. I love you and I'll talk to you soon. Peace. Drummer's Resource is produced by Revoice Media. Executive producer Nick Ruffini, that's me. Edited by Justin Thomas. Video editing by Tomas Shannon. And graphic design by Catherine Wade. For more music and entertainment podcasts, be sure to check out revoicemedia.com.